is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Welcome to episode four. Today I'm joined uh, with Dr. Carl Telford uh, and we're going to be looking and talking about really the energy transition and, well, I'm going to call it the need for batteries. So can I start, Carl, by just getting you to perhaps tell people your background, uh, some of your experience and, and really kind of where you are now and and some of the things you're involved in because I think that's a really nice starting point before we dive into the actual topic of energy and storage and everything else. Yeah, sure. So it's great to be here on this podcast with you, Chris, but I guess I started out my career many years ago, back in the 90s, uh, as a materials engineer. So my academic background is in materials engineering. But I've always had a thing about the future. So when I was a kid, some of my earliest memories are things like watching Tomorrow's World and the amazement at, at what could be possible with technology in the future. So that's always fascinated me. And after a few years in the laboratory, I got a job with a spin-off of SRI International, SRI originally standing for Stanford Research Institute. And they had an office in London and I worked for them and I worked for them for 15 years. And what did I do there? Well, I, I spent a lot of time writing and researching about future technology, technology trends. And I did a lot of, I, I learned a lot about futures research, futurology, and how you can't predict the future and tools and techniques for coping with the fact you can't um, predict the future. So I did a lot of projects on things like scenario planning, horizon scans. I worked with the US government, I worked with big corporations, I did some projects for the European Commission. And yeah, a lot of it was technology focused, but it gave me this real sense that, well, it's very difficult to predict the future. And then after 15 years there, I worked for a, an automotive consultancy. I absolutely love cars, so I moved to a consultancy called Ricardo, and I worked there for almost six years and it was brilliant. I, I worked for some major car companies in, in Europe, the United States and particularly in Japan, um, developing future scenarios, thinking about helping them think about um, what the world around them could look like and what uh, mobility and other solutions they'd need to provide in the coming decades. And what sort, what sort of years are we talking about here? When, when were you doing this work? When did that start? So I started that in I started that work in yeah 2016 uh, with car companies and we were looking out to 2030 2040 2050 that kind of time frame and I actually wrote Ricardo themselves some scenarios as well to help them with their future planning and if you if you delve into the last couple of years of their, their annual reports you'll see some of the scenarios we came up with basically as sort of strategic tests. You know, if the world looks like this, what was Ricardo's place in it? 
I spent five years there living in the future. And then I had the opportunity to join the company I'm with now, the organization I should say I'm with now, the Consortium for Battery Innovation. And uh, we represent large battery makers, particularly makers of car batteries and energy storage batteries for stationary storage. And my job at the moment is more about getting projects off the ground to actually make okay. something happen. And that's kind of the reason that I, I moved into energy storage was because I, I'd had those scenarios that I developed in the past in my head. And I thought, whatever the future scenario, we're, we're kind of going to need all the energy storage we can throw at this, this problem, the problems we've got as a planet. Wouldn't it be great to start some projects that would, would have some real beneficial impact and something tangible? When you're constantly living 30 or 40 years in, in, into the future, it's very difficult to grab anything tangible. Yeah, absolutely. So. But I guess I guess you're seeing in that some of the real entrepreneurship and innovation mm -hmm. right at its very infancy. Yeah, absolutely. And problem solving as well, because we can't we can't wait until 2030, 2040 to do something. We need to react yesterday to the, the, the problem of climate change. Yeah. Uh, as a in my sort of futures projects that I've done over the past 15 years, I would say, it's been a looming issue. And really, I hate to say it, but as a as a as a, as the community of, of humans, we haven't done enough about it, in my opinion. Okay. We haven't reacted to it, been slow to react to it. And now we're seeing we need we need to speed things up. <laughs> so 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 on that can can we kind of go back into history because i think that's mm. sometimes quite quite interesting isn't it yeah uh, certainly for the audience because as you say you, you live in the future in the kind of future work and futurology work and scenario planning and things like that but i'm sure i'm sure you appreciate this that you to understand sometimes the future you need to look backwards yes and you need to see where you've come from and i think this is a really interesting kind of topic and part to where you're working is mm. that energy transformation. I mean, yeah. we can go all the way back to kind of biomass and coal and the industrial yeah. revolution, if you want. And and just really kind of, it'd be, I think it'd be interesting before we dive into the battery technology itself and the need for storage and renewables and everything else is is to, to let's talk about that, if that's, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Um, because this is this is where from, from my side, I find it fascinating in, in that, we are moving for the first time in human history, mm -hmm. uh, as far as I'm aware anyway, for, to a less dense energy source. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of follow the, the transition or the human progress right from the industrialization, we went from biomass, which obviously was very, very inefficient, I guess, inefficient probably in storing energy too from your point of view, but certainly inefficient in terms of the heat it generates mm -hmm and its power output. And then we found coal. Then we found kind of the combustion engine was was more efficient. Mm -hmm. Then we've gone on to oil. I'm sure we're going to touch on all the new technologies ever since that. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, when you track kind of economic progress, they are so closely linked. The lines yeah. actually run together. Uh, our ability to burn stuff and our ability to actually <laughs> progress as a human society. And for the first time, we're stopping to burn stuff but we've we've also got 
we're at this point in history where we're now going to less energy dense sources, uh, which is also, I think, quite interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And it's almost, I think that if you were to map kind of energy source, energy sources and their, their energy density against human development, you might get a similar picture to that of materials development. Okay. And also into things like, like food and cooking. You'll see these, these jumps in, in, uh, in, uh, human evolution, I guess. Not yep. physical evolution, yep. but the societal evolution, I would say. Yes. Actually. Progress. Progress. Of. Progress. Yep. Yeah. It's a great way of thinking about it, Chris. That, that accompany these, these shifts. And you're right. We've got that kind of, we've almost got, we're entering a paradox, aren't we? Where you, you've got to go from a, this, this wonderful energy dense sort of fossil fuel era to something that is a much more, well, less energy dense. Yes, I would say if in general, um, we have to remember that, but we're also diversifying, I think, in terms of, of the sources and storage of energy in terms of the technologies. So I, I, I think we need to, the biggest shift is, is a complete, is almost a level above this, and that's a shift from a linear economy to a circular economy. Yeah. So we're moving from thinking about just getting stuff, using it, and that could be burning it to create electricity, for instance, towards, well, what happens after that? A consequence of the use of fossil fuels is that all that carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, it's not recirculated quickly enough, I should say. It's not turned back into coal or, or deposits in the ground quickly enough for it to be considered truly circular. So I think there's almost a level a level above that that is that is very interesting. And it's it's that decoupling, isn't it? It's allowing the progress to continue, but that problem of energy density to become independent. That's kind of the challenge that we've got to, to, to deal with. And I think that it's immensely difficult and we'll need a diversity of solutions to sort yep. it. It's not going to be a, a one-size-fits-all. We may need, we'll need all kinds, we'll need all of the technologies to throw at the problem. We really will. And we need, we need people to change as well. We need people to change their expectations and... Uh, Maybe some people to use less energy than the, become more efficient in how they use things. It's difficult to change behaviours, but um, yeah. well, I, I think I think actually we potentially have that shift in society, don't we? Um, mm. You know, as you see the younger generation come through, and and this mm. is obviously far too simplistic and broad brush, but when you look at the change in behaviours and spending, that's certainly something that you know I spend quite a lot of time looking at. Uh, you do see a shift uh, towards they want far more mm-hmm. authenticity. They want far more transparency in, in kind of the products they're buying and where things are yeah. being sourced from. I think it is a very interesting point. And I know we've talked about this before. And the the energy transition and that decoupling that you talked about, actually, we seem to have that in so many different fields right now. It's not just energy. It's uh, advances right. in in medicine, in demographic changes in climate changes and we, we are living so i the term i i use quite a lot is radical social change mm-hmm. um 
and I think we are going through that period where the social contract itself is being rewritten around us. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure people are aware of that. I think it's so diverse, it's difficult to, it's dif- it's difficult to make it tangible in your brain. But it's, we've, we've definitely, I think we tend to focus as a society on some of the, the negative aspects of the flow of information. So if you think about things like social uh, media uh, and the impact that's had on societies, media particularly, traditional media, focuses on the negative aspects of that. But it's also been a, a, a force for good in that some of the good messages, and I'm thinking about things around the shift to a circular economy, all of the things that you, you mentioned actually, Chris, that's kind of become pervasive, I think. And a lot of people, particularly younger people, are receptive to the need to change behaviour and to think a little bit more deeply about where something has come from and where it's going to go when you've finished with it. Yes. And there's definitely yeah. a, a lot of a lot of pressure from that. The consequences of your behaviour as a a consumer, I say consumer in inverted commas. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it is, it is that consumer, that flow of money, which really directs what products succeed, which companies succeed. Mm-hmm. And I guess bringing this back to energy... Yeah. Um, so, for example, for the last two, two, two and a half years, I made the choice to buy 100% renewable energy. I'm, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the most cost effective thing to do, but it was a, it was something that I felt quite morally strong about. Mm-hmm. And, and where you have those flows of capital, and you, as you identified, you have that innovation happening, yeah. then those projects suddenly get funding because they have more f- flow of yeah. money towards them. This is really interesting, actually, because I think at a certain certain levels of the business community, kind of, we're seeing. I say, I'd say the commercial world. Actually, we're seeing, we're seeing a a confluence of activity that's similar to the behaviour you just described from a consumer perspective. So, you take someone like uh, I can pick two examples. Like, what is BlackRock doing? Yeah. What what have endowment funds at places like Stanford University done over the past ten years? They've divested their activities related to fossil fuels. Why have they done that? Numerous reasons, and all of them actually connect to money and markets. Uh, so they are thinking about their pockets in a way, and the pockets of the investors. They're divesting because. Well, numerous reasons. They don't want to be invested in stranded assets, things that can't get used in the future. They want to invest in things that have solid growth beyond the next quarter and well into future decades. The list goes on. And really, if you if you want to be sustainable, and I say that in the broader sense, not a, not a narrow sense, thinking in that way is... It's the way that consumers and and businesses need to do. They need to think longer term, and uh, yeah, that's going kind to of, that's going to fuel this. That's going to fuel the energy transition and all kinds of other things. Yeah, 
Uh, so, I mean, let's let's stick on that point of investment because I think that kind of tags in nicely. So we just talked mm-hmm. about the history of energy and where we've come from. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, there were some pretty big hurdles to get into renewables. Yes. And again, this was overcome by, I, I'm going to say, a, few, a handful of businesses mm-hmm. willing to actually adopt new technologies. So I'm going to just pick on wind power and the cost per megawatt hour we've seen reduce. Yes. From from eye watering levels, I'm just going to make this up. I could be wrong, but it's like 170 pounds in the UK if we go back far enough, and we're now down to kind of 50 pounds, 60 pounds per megawatt yeah. hour today, and and that's an incredible journey. And I think that I I'm, I think I'm right in saying that that's happening across the whole spectrum of kind of renewable energies and materials. Would that be fair to say? I I would say that that a lot of them are definitely reducing we'll come back to batteries that's not quite been the case with with, with batteries but really primary generation you're talking about really commercial you're essentially going on a commoditization journey aren't you yes of the technologies look at the commoditization that china did with with photovoltaics you know enormous the cost per kilowatt hour just sank you know and okay you're now into the point where you get materials availability affecting the affecting the cost of solar panels and things like that, and chips and stuff like that. So that says it's got to a level where it's you know it's it's mass market. And wind powers, uh, wind power again is one of those things that used to be well, it's, it's because we've never done it before properly, and now you know materials technologies have advanced. You've got huge turbines. You've got We've got economies of scale, and that's all going to impact the cost of generating energy um, in a in a good way. So yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you, Chris. I think it's it's got down to a point where we can certainly produce enough energy using renewable sources of, of multiple types. Again, that comes back to the diversification that I was talking about. Because in Britain, offshore wind is brilliant. If you, if you live in the middle of, I don't know, if you live in the in if you live in the middle of a landmass, you're not going to have offshore wind, are you? Let's face it. No, no, absolutely. And then, of course, they do get into difficulties because wind isn't strictly horizontal on land. And so you, you yes. get the inefficiencies there. Although, absolutely. again, I've had some interesting conversations with uh, uh, some some young companies and innovators who are looking at rotating mm-hmm. the blades to actually take into account yes. wind direction. I think what we're coming around to is there is such massive innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm going to go actually the opposite way to you. you. You were saying you don't think enough has been done. I don't think enough has been done so far. Mm-hmm. But I th- I actually, I see this as very, once the human race gets behind something, I think I'm a firm believer in in just how creative we can really be. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think we, we are at that tipping point of well, mass so. adoption. I'm going to bring this around. So, from the history of of energy, uh, mm-hmm. and now let's let's start talking about batteries themselves, okay. because because I think this is now a, a key thing, really, isn't it? In understanding, because there are some limitations to renewables. We talked about energy density, yes. um, but also kind of that the flow of wind, let's say, <laughs> is is not there all the time. In fact, no. you know, we've had some recent examples in the UK where it's mm. I. Th- I think it's been that it's been too much wind yes. not enough wind the wind's in the wrong direction so how do we overcome that and and what what's 
What are the, the things in place or about to be in place? Again, it's diversity. Now, one of the beautiful things about fossil fuels is you can burn them when you want to burn them and create energy. So, you know, you, you produce, you turn more power plants on. Traditionally in the UK, we used to have things like, well, when there'd be a spike in demand when the first advert break comes on in Coronation Street in the in the 70s and 80s. Well, everybody put their kettle on. When everyone put their kettle on. Or during, you know, during halftime at a World Cup match. That kind of thing. That's a, that's an illustration that, you know, su- supply and demand are not balanced. Uh, and from the demand side, you've got these spikes. You're getting more and more complicated now because, because you've got more things that demand energy. And, but you haven't got that switch on, switch off when needed uh, from the supply side. If you've got sure. renewables, because the wind blows when it damn well wants to. The sun shines when it wants to or doesn't. The list goes on and on and on. So you need a buffer, basically. Now, there are numerous ways of creating buffers. Uh, if you go to North Wales, you've got things like pumped water, hydro storage. So when you're producing too much electricity in the grid, you can use it to pump water from a low level to a high level, and you, and you can then dump that when everyone turns their kettles on. You can also use it, batteries. Fact, that's, that's just, it's just down the road for me. The, that Plumberis, um the hydroelectric plant. It's called yeah. Denoy, I think it's called. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, okay, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I remember visiting that and being inspired when I was a young engineer many years ago. So it's, 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 it's a perfect thing to think about if you want to conceptualise the problem and the solution. Well, what we, need is to di- what we need is to distribute that solution. So you need different forms of energy storage. So can I, can I just ask you there? So this the hydroelectric plant, such as that, mm-hmm. that would be classed as an energy storage solution because while they're generating, they're using power to pump water back up. Yes. Is, is it, am, I, am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. That is a storage solution. It yeah, does okay. generate power when you open the, 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 the gates open the at taps. the bottom, yeah. open the taps and let it flow through, very much like a, 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 a hydroelectric generation plant but it's a storage solution and it's uh they use terms like peak shaving and and things like that but it's it's so that if there's a huge demand from the grid you can you can meet that demand by by letting that water flow down when you want it to so it's smoothing uh smoothing the the the, uh, smoothing between supply and demand and, and is that an example of something which you think we'll continue to see? Yes. Or is that very much old technology we're moving away from? I think that's a really interesting point. I think we'll need multiple different technologies to solve this. Okay. That is really good. That is a really good solution for a grid level uh, s- solution that, that solves a spike in demand. It's free, it is a really good solution. We have to be pragmatic and say that that is an established technology and it's very, very useful. Where there are different kind of features, if you think of supply and demand as a kind of a, if you think of 
demand as a kind of a spiky graph. The shape of those spikes uh, will point to a different solution. So batteries will be better in one for dealing with one sort of spike. Um, pumped water will be uh, important to deal with others. And then, you, of course, you, you give need... an example of of different spikes. I guess if, I guess batteries might be will probably be better for for well, depending on the type of battery, <laughs> would be better. Something like lead batteries. I work a lot with lead batteries, and they're typically an old, quite an, you know, they're considered an old school technology, but they're very very good at producing very high power outputs very suddenly. So you think okay. it's their most common application. Well, they start an internal combustion engine. That's that's, that's often the, the, the archetypal, well-established use for a lead battery. But what you're doing, you're providing a load of power really quickly. So if you want to do something on a smaller scale than the pump storage, but a similar profile, then lead is very, very good. For other types of curves, and I don't know many off the, other, off the top of my head, but lithium-ion batteries will probably be more suitable for other situations. Um, and you've got cost, and you've got geography, and you've got all of these other factors that come into play. And again, it comes into more diversity of diversity of solution. We need we need all of these technologies to throw at the problem. So, so on on that point, um, because I mean, this is where I kind of I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand over to you a lot a lot more now because <laughs> I I don't you know I'm I'm a novice this I I read round the topic but we we seem to have so many different types of battery yes. and from what I hear you're saying is we need all of these different types for different applications so we've mentioned two there lead batteries and lithium ion <laughs> but we also have um, I'm just trying. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like I sound like what I uh, I'm gonna pretend I know, I know what I, I'm talking about here. Metal, air, lead, acid, sodium, sulfur. Yeah. As you can tell, I've just pulled these um, terms off Google. I have no idea really what they are. But um, <laughs> redox but, flow, <laughs> okay, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, we we seem to have so many different technologies. Um, as you said, lead lead is is a is an old technology but mm-hmm. you see a future for that so i'd like to kind of get your uh, your view on that but could you could you describe why we have so many different battery technologies and different uh different kind of uh, materials being used in them well i guess there's always the, the quest for energy density okay let's take volumetric energy density so volumetric energy density is how much energy you can store in a in a given volume and you're going to go, you're going to be very hard pushed to beat something like uh, gasoline or diesel. Hugely energy dense. You look at how many, um, how much energy can be stored in a, in a given volume or for a given mass even for that. Really, really, you're going to be really tough to beat that. Look at an energy density curve. You guys can look it up. It's, it's, it's fossil fuels are really, really impressive. Batteries, um, we're on a quest to improve that all the time. So that's why you've got this evolution of, of, of battery technologies. You want to pack as much energy storage into, into a small space as you can. That's why we've had, like, I mean, lead acid batteries have been around for a long time. And then you've, you've had, like, um, nickel metal hydride, 
current wave of development in lithium-ion technologies. In the future, there's like lithium, you know, there's, there's sodium-based batteries, there's solid-state lithium batteries. And really, it's just that quest to be able to have lightweight, low-volume batteries that can store as much energy as possible. That's driving the evolution of materials technology and all kinds of things. Those would be the kind of the three things that are the, are the kind of the the greatest thing ever for a battery technician is is low cost, lightweight, high density. Is that kind of that's those are the three things that everyone's trying to do. Yeah, and there's a few more things been thrown into the because you've got trade offs. Okay, you've got cost, you've got um, simplicity, you've got temperature um, tolerance robustness we've got circularity so as i mentioned at the top of the discussion we have this transition from kind of a linear economy just use it and forget about it to a a circular economy so you've now got that thrown in the mix you want to make sure that um your batteries tread lightly on the earth okay and it all makes it incredibly complex and really that's why I go back to the diversity because we should really be deploying the right batteries in the right situations. So if you've got a car, you've got your, you know, you've got an electric vehicle. That's a great example of an application where you really need those uh, volumetrically and gravimetrically energy dense batteries. Because you don't want to be pushing around a huge massive batteries that will just ruin your range so if you can have lightweight batteries in a car it's a virtuous circle is it not that seems seems sensible to me but in an energy storage system for grid balancing who cares you don't need because you, you have you have, in, you have almost space. infinite space and weight doesn't matter yeah exactly okay. so in that situation you you can you can have a um you can have different sorts of batteries you could have redox flow batteries you can have pumped storage like i described before you could have microgrids lead batteries are a really good fit so i think we need to again it comes it comes down to something called systems thinking really so we want to think of energy storage and energy use as a system and why and what technologies want to deploy in what position in that system it's very very important and it's not a one-size-fits-all if I can come back to the, the bring the, the, the subject of, fu- of futurology and futurism again. Please do. Absolutely. One of my absolute pet hates is seeing people, seeing people who describe themselves as futurists really being very partisan about technology. We see this a lot on the internet. People saying, people basically saying that one technology which they are invested in is the answer to everything and everything else is a loser and you you should not be investing in that technology and i was right about this so i'm going to be right about that in the future we need to stop thinking like that we need to start thinking uh, about a system that includes different technologies yeah. and it's actually quite suited to, suited to each application suited to each application and suited for the system and uh you know that system needs to be sustainable and circular so you want to put the right batteries in the right place. But it's so important that batteries are going to be hugely important in dealing with the intermittency, the, the problem. Yeah. So I'm currently developing 
projects around microgrids. And what we're trying to do, I mean, what we're trying to do is give communities that don't have reliable access to power and energy, who don't have access to a grid. We're trying to, to give them energy, but make it sustainable energy. So we're okay. using batteries, we're looking at having, we're looking at creating hydrogen when there's too much power to either store in the batteries or um, say you've got solar solar cells, you've got a really hot day, loads of sunshine, you're creating loads and loads and loads of energy. You can either store it as uh, in your batteries to be used in the microgrid or you can generate some hydrogen and use that for cooking or light industry. So we're doing that kind of thing and that, that system that we're building really is trying to add some, I guess, diversity and system redundancy so that you, you, you can provide yeah, safe and sustainable power for a small community. So this, this would be uh, kind of typically kind of somewhere, as you say, kind of not connected to a major power yeah. grid, kind of yeah. more remote locations. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a good, that's a good situation, particularly in areas where it might get hot. It's a good situation uh, and and remote is a good situation for lead batteries, which I work with a lot because they're very robust, they're simple, uh, they're tolerant damage and they're easy to charge. They don't require complicated battery management systems. So it's perfect for that. But if you've got a bigger installation in a different place and you've got some grid connectedness to it, then you want, you want you know, you'll want lithium batteries. So what I'm trying to say is we don't want to set one technology off against the other. Let's look at the let's look at the um the system involved and what, what energy storage meets that needs. It's gonna get complicated, but back to something that you said, Chris, that I thought was uh, was was great. I, I, I think that I do I do agree with you that there is a generation of people who around at the moment who can solve these problems yeah it's really up to other people in society to give them the investment and the the uh, the backing that they need to make it all happen because i think we can do it yeah absolutely and that, that's kind of i i think i think that really came from i remember being at a dinner and the keynote speaker was i think it was he was the ceo of jaguar land rover <laughs> this is going back a few years ago and i remember him just saying uh, at the time, EV was obviously coming through, but it wasn't really the it wasn't the, the one route for cars. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember him saying, "Well, we've never actually tried to make the combustion engine that efficient." <laughs> and that was that was a statement where I suddenly kind of went, "Oh, okay." You know, how much does that apply to everything else in life? That we've, <laughs> we've, we've just gone along with can we reduce the cost of production? But really, yeah. kind of how efficient we make something—that's a very new mindset. Yeah. Um, and and again, when you start looking at it from that angle, this is where I think I I become a lot more mm. optimistic, or I certainly have over the past few years. Is you go, wow, okay, now people are actually concentrating on that issue of reducing carbon or reducing virgin material use. Yes. These are these are very they yes okay they've been done in the past, but no, no great scale. Mm. And nobody's really put all their effort behind it. And, and we are now. Yeah, I think I'm seeing a mind shift in my industry because um, if we think about 
the lead acid battery. Um, it does sound like quite an old technology. But there again, I would, I would argue something like um, railways is quite an old technology. It's a, it's a, a nine, you know, 17, a, a 19th century technology, I mean. And we don't consider, well, you've got high speed rail. So technology can, can, can evolve. It evolves in fits and starts. It's, it's quite interesting because there's a real push in our industry to think about new battery architectures. So the lead battery is not standing still. We have developments like bipolar batteries. These are much more energy dense and still cheap. And the other, the other thing that we're working on is, you know, really working on circularity and, and, and fine tuning it. Um, lead batteries are already over 90% recycled. So they're, they're astonishingly circular, which is another advantage. We need to move from a linear to a circular economy. So we're working on optimizing that. And that, that's very much of the times because we need this move to circularity. And did, did I, I did I see something that the EU had put out that they were uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the word mandating, but I'm not sure that that's actually correct. But they were mandating that that battery manufacturers must use a certain percentage of recycled materials in have, the future. They certainly have targets. Um, I think their current targets are kind of sixty. It depends on the battery chemistry, but we're looking at, I think, 60% by 2030 for lithium ion. Okay. Lead is much higher because it's already very, very high. Um, and new battery types, over, I think it's, either, it's something like over 50% or something like that. I was looking at it earlier in the week. I don't remember the, don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but you're absolutely right. That is a huge journey they've got to go on with, with some of the newer battery chemistries because the complexity of the packs is quite high, so you've got to do all the separation. Then you've got recycling of the materials involved in it, and there's different chemistries. So lithium ion is not one type of battery. You've got different chemistries, therefore different component materials. So separation and then breaking down into things that can be reused is... It's going to be complex and achieving that by, you know, within the next decade is going to be a challenge because the capacity of recycling for it, for lithium ion at the moment is, is still fairly low. So does, the whole industry has got, got to be built and it's it's still in the, it's still on the bench really. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's challenging. Does that, does that cause the battery, the kind of the, the if they're having to re-innovate how you put together the battery because all of a sudden now mm -hmm. i'm guessing as you were saying that as you're using recycled materials that's a different chemistry to to not does does that present some challenges yeah, uh, undoubtedly. For, for, for actually kind of the progression we're already making is i i guess the point i'm, I'm going down design for circularity is going to become increasingly important in batteries it's one thing in in, in my part of the battery industry we're fairly lucky with because they're Kind of tick a lot of boxes but i work with people across all kinds of chemistries of batteries i'm part of an energy uh, storage community i would say and i'm going to be looking to help those guys learn from what we do and uh, and design future batteries that are circular we think about um think about somewhere like like the european union uh like europe european continent i should i should say how are we going to get 
there's two reasons for for wanting to be circular. Actually, one is one is that it, it's better for for sustainability reasons and and environmental reasons. Like for environmental reasons, I should say. And the second is access to raw materials. Um, there are certain uh, materials present in in batteries which have which are limited in terms of their their abundance and their geography, the geographical spread, you could end up with conflict conflict over access to raw materials, which is something um, rather unpalatable. But in another so, sense, so th- this could this could also kind of yeah. read in between the lines of what you're saying here is this this could actually help geopolitical risk in the future. If you recycle, of, yes, because yeah. if you if you've got a, a closed loop and you can feed in materials that we used in previous, and I'm not just talking about batteries; it can be the kinds of strategic yeah. materials as well, rare earths and things like that as well. I'm thinking about for electronics. It's all really, really, really important that they are not just landfilled. Yeah. They are actually that the materials are then recycled into 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 new goods, and that can that can help prevent conflict over supplies of materials. And yeah, it's quite funny actually. We we did some scenario the scenarios we did with, with Ricardo and with other people. They were kind of we had almost two extreme scenarios. One was a really green scenario where everything was recycled because it was a good thing to do and then we had an we had another scenario that was more of a a fractured world and that ended up being we thought in that scenario recycling would be important as well because if you're isolated you need you need to uh, recycle the materials because you can't trade for you can't get it you can't get it in in the border (laughs) yeah so it's it's uh I guess looking at things like those scenarios made me convinced that both energy storage and and recycling were really really robust technology technology areas for the future, and I should get yeah, involved absolutely. in one or the other. <laughs> well, absolutely, but I think I think it's actually a, you know it's an interesting point, and and let's widen that back out to other trends going on actually, mm-hmm. because we are in a world where geopolitical risk is mm-hmm. increasing. Um, yes. You know, you you see that pe- probably people just watching the news see it in, let's say, US China. Uh, you know, the trade wars that were going on. If, if you can remember anything apart from COVID, um, <laughs> uh, and before that, of course, you know, we had Brexit, which is closer to home for us. Yeah. Uh, but you have all these frictions going on, and this is before we even get into access to materials. Yes. And the other one, which I'd add in here, is access to water. Because, oh. you know, if we, if we have an increasing temperature and increasing droughts and things like that, then then one of the one of the fascinating uh, kind of things to look at sit from a from a transboundary conflict point of view is uh, water sources. Yeah. There's a there's a whole host of countries who don't actually have a, a water source which pops up in their own land. It comes cross boundary. Now, of course, as you're saying with materials, yeah, uh, th- those are those are sites of potentially massive conflict, and certainly if we do move to a position where there's increasing droughts, it'd be nice to think that the materials don't add to that issue if we can, <laughs> if we can uh, if we can be recycling them and, and reusing them. Yeah, so careful about materials use, careful about water use. 
Yeah. I think we should Absolutely. just, I mean, my solution to it is just be nicer to one another, but it's, uh, climate change is, of course, the driver of a lot of this as well. So it's, that's, it's, it's that, it's that change in, in climate. And I would say the propensity for extreme weather events could cause yeah. temporary shortages of water. Fresh water, yes. I should say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, and I think this comes it comes back to kind of the the, the wealth of the place it happens to as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got yeah. to take that into account and also the potential for mass population migration. I think, um, I mean, we've, we've already started to see that already. If you, you know, when we, we were on about plotting uh, different things against one another, one like, like human development against uh, fuel sources, if you if you plot climate change against migration levels, or I reckon that's another that, another one which another which has one, a, which a very is, close relationship because yeah. it can. I, I, I think there's a huge. There's, there's, I, I remember reading a few years ago about about temperature spikes and conflict. There is a huge correlation between. Kind of te- temp- the, the, the co- correlation between temperature in a, in a community, air temperature, you know, 40, 50 degrees, you're more likely to have civil unrest and, and, and therefore conflict. So, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think, I think again, it's, it's, and that, one cra- of those that drives where, migration is what I was trying yeah. to say. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if if let's just take Britain for example, we you know we're sat here recording this in Britain, and if our temperature rose by three four degrees, mm-hmm. we would have some significant issues. Yes, but that's the average temperature of let's just go a little bit south. Let's say Spain, and yeah. and so actually what we're coming down to is not so much we can't survive as a human race; it's just our infrastructure is potentially just doesn't adapt quick enough. And, you know, I, I guess this is also where you want lots of different sources of energy, different sources of storage. Mm. Because, again, I, I'm, I'm guessing now, you, you can tell me <laughs> if I'm right or wrong, but I, I'm guessing that, that actually kind of different climates require different battery technologies. I mean, if we're talking the extremes, very cold climates and very hot climates. Yeah, I, I imagine you would. I don't know the, the exact answer in terms of technologies. But certain battery technologies do work better in, in certain in different, conditions. In different kind of, uh, in yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. The, as, as, kind of to pull this back onto topic, um, the world is changing. <laughs> I think we've kind of yeah. established that. Now, one of the things I know that we enjoyed talking about last time we spoke, and I think would make a good kind of topic on this podcast, is actually just thinking about the decentralization of power. Because yes. I think I think that's something else which uh, everything nowadays seems to just be decentralizing, which again is a, an interesting trend in itself. In that you have decentralizing finance, you have uh, um, cryptocurrencies, a decentralized version of of money, yes. um, and all these different things. The Internet of Things brings everything in, and but the same thing is potentially happening. Well, I guess it already is when people stick solar panels on their roof and. Yeah and feed it back to the grid. But I th- it goes further than that, doesn't it? Yes. Is that right? Yeah, so I mean, it's 
it's it's interesting because it adds it does add robustness as well if you've got if you just have one power station and that goes offline then a whole well we saw some we saw problems in Scotland didn't we recently you know in in previous weeks and uh, if you have local generation and that can be individual generation you know kind of solar panels or heat pumps or other technologies. If you can have that at a domestic level, you certainly have more resilience. And then it comes into smart grids, doesn't it? Because you're still connected to the grid. And when you're um, generating electricity from the roof and you're not using it, that can be fed into the grid. Or it can charge your car and be stored in your car if you've got an electric car. I think this does add robustness to the system. You're just you're distributing the risk as well as distributing the power generation. And yeah, it's really interesting. And again in that in that situation, if you've got depending on where you are geographically, your primary energy source at a distributed level will be will be will probably be different. I could see wind turbines in some backyards. Maybe in, in northern parts of England or something like that, you know, or the UK, rather. So, so, so yeah, you, you, di- you diversify both generation mm-hmm. and, and storage. That's, a, that's an interesting concept. Now, I, now I'm going to go back to cars and batteries mm-hmm. because this, I, you, you've just sparked something in my head, which I'm going to ask you if it's true or not, uh, if, if, if you know. <laughs> um, and I'm sure when the when texas had the power outages that there were a whole load of people uh with uh ev cars and they were actually able to power their house because is, is it is it called bimodal when a when yeah a, when a battery can go float both ways and i'm pretty sure that they were almost a, an early sign of what we're talking about the kind of yeah. resilience of the grid in that they didn't experience the same power outage I mean, obviously, eventually their F one fifty truck runs out of power, but uh, <laughs> it it um, it powered the house, which I mean, it's it's incredible, really. Well, I guess if you've got a big Tesla or something like that with a, a large battery, then there's there's no reason if you've got V to G or V two. I don't know all the acronyms. There are so many acronyms <laughs> in, in. But basically, if you're if 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 you've got Two, if you've got a two-way system, so energy, can, as you mentioned, so energy can flow out of your vehicle back into your your house. Then, yeah, that's a, a, again a kind of a grid stabilizing, yeah, system potentially. I mean, I mean, this is interesting because I did a project with a Japanese car maker about ten years ago, and HEMS was something I did a lot of research on, and that's not bits at the bottom of your trousers. It's uh, HEMS, Home Energy Management Systems. And this automotive company were, were very interested in this, in this subject because they saw the car as, a, as an extension of your home. It's got the energy storage on board. Energy could flow two ways. They could also make the, the charger, could is not just to charge your car, it's to accept power as well. Okay. Supply your home if needed, like if needed, backup, a, backup yeah. power situation. I mean, it's quite interesting because um, things like data centers, 
Yep. And uh, telecommunications uh, centres have huge. I mean, one of one of it's a big market for my uh, some of my uh, partners, the consortium of battery innovation. Uh, UPS uninterrupted power systems is quite a big market for, for our batteries. So these these would continue powering the data center in the event that the grid yeah, went off. so you don't okay. lose connectivity or you don't lose signal. And it's almost a smaller version of that strategy that's needed in your home. So if the grid power goes off, you can you can use your car to, as part of a, a part of a system to ensure that you've got standby power. Yeah. And I, I guess of, it also takes kind of the, those kind of solar panels and or wind turbines to another a new level that instead yeah. of generating power and passing it straight into the grid i guess you could charge your own home batteries yeah absolutely and you you achieve continuity of power yes at, at that level rather than the national level yes you have like a buffer in your house a uh, 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 they call it behind the meter solution okay. where you've got this uh, you've got this bank of batteries you can charge that up and then it it uh, it, uh, it can provide power to either cut your bills a bit, or um, or if the grid power goes off, you've got robustness and resilience. Yeah, it's also no. good. It's also good because it's close to the source of generation as well. So, I think that you know when we you know new new generations of house builds will have more of this technology uh, built in included. Yeah. It's really, really is, important. Is there a lot of energy lost? I, I, again, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but mm. is there a lot of energy lost between power generation and usage when you transport it across a whole grid? Is that is that kind of a I don't an know inefficient the exact, mechanism? I don't know the exact figures, but electrons tend to be better at this than the internal combustion engine. It's one thing I would say. The internal combustion engine is kind of tended to be, I think it's less than... You know, it's well under fifty percent thermally efficient, isn't it? Or it's just yeah. under. I think some modern generations of engines are there, are there are thereabouts. But I think that's a bit of a that can be a bit of a I don't know the phrase a red herring. Looking at that too much, okay, because it's quite it's quite inefficient to create something like hydrogen using electrolysis. But there are certain situations when it's advantageous to do that. Like if you were going to waste that energy, so it's better to store store some of it if you can. Like yes. we have to capture as much hitherto wasted energy. I think that's that's kind of another another avenue that we need to look at. Waste yeah. heat's another one. I mean, you can use things like thermoelectric generators to thermoelectric to materials to capture waste heat and things like that. Yeah, we need to look into to more ways of incrementally improving it and i guess coming back to the hydrogen thing is yes as you're saying it takes quite a lot of electricity to generate mm -hmm. through electrolysis but then there are certain again coming back to this idea of different power sources for different applications yes um i think it's a spin-off from jcb certainly the son of jcb joe bamford who's created a hydrogen company yes to power plant machinery because i'm guessing that the energy density of fuel needed to power those machines and certainly when we get to big ships and things like that ah. just need something um far more powerful 
Yeah, uh, powering a, a large excavator using batteries is can be tricky. Yeah, um, powering a ship using batteries really tricky. So they're looking at things like I mean, this obviously it's hydrogen. Uh, you can either burn hydrogen in a in a in a uh, in an internal combustion engine, or you can use a, a fuel cell, either a set solid oxide fuel cell or a polymer membrane fuel cell. I think this is the this is the thing. I come back to my annoyance with certain futurists saying, "Oh, batteries in the future, electric vehicles are everywhere. It's going to power ships, excavators, everything." And I, I'm like. No, it depends on the situation. So for a, for a ship, you know, you might want to look at ammonia, or different renew, renewable fuels, you know, aeroplanes. Yeah. Okay, there are some small battery-powered aeroplanes, but, you know, we kind of need re- renewable fuels. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, okay, it might be inefficient to turn sunlight uh, and atmospheric carbon dioxide into a, a, a fuel, but if you can do it, you should be doing it. And yes, that fuel will be expensive, but that fuel is needed for, for air travel. So put that into air travel, power your smaller stuff, batteries, and stuff in between will be a mix. Again, it's this distribution of different technologies that we need to get our heads around. It's, uh, it's so important we have access to all of the different technologies. So we want developments in different battery chemistries. We want developments in different uh, propulsion types because they're going to be needed depending on the, the size and scale of the, of the application. Trying to make an aeroplane, you know, renewable is... A big challenge. It's a huge challenge. Yeah. And not one that's so going to be solved, I don't, I don't think, unless we have a, a huge breakthrough in, in battery technology. It's going to be really, really difficult. But if you can make synthetic renewable fuel, maybe you don't have such a problem. And you can suck up some of that carbon dioxide that's lurking in the atmosphere as well. On on that point, just to kind of wrap up, um, I, I guess I just have one more question. And that is around what you see coming up. You know, what haven't we covered already? And what are some of the innovations mm. that kind of you either see coming up or want to see coming up uh, you you can choose how you uh, you you answer that one um but it'd be interesting just to see what you <laughs> you kind of um ha- have on the desk i think um i think some of the i think there'll, there'll need to be innovation in financial mechanisms for for, for um for funding things like home energy systems and i hope to see some innovation in that the mechanism by which i can i can convert my house depending on its location we don't have in my house we don't have a south facing roof we have a north facing roof this is not good for solar panels so i might want a ground source heat pump so how can what mechanisms can be done to to encourage me and many people like me to move to that. I think we need kind of business models, business model innovation for doing that. And that's, we're seeing some developments in there. I think that's very, very important. And then really sort of very not, I think some of the developments we've seen in fusion technology, nuclear fusion technology, 
I'm going to broaden that out, actually. I'm going to say I'm hopeful about nuclear power. Nuclear power was first developed and commercialised in the 50s and 60s for two purposes. It had to concurrently provide power and provide fissile materials for weapons. Okay. If you were to to optimise nuclear power, so just to create power, it comes back on the agenda as being something that's suitable. So we're having like mini sub subcritical developments in mini subcritical nuclear power supplies are really, really, really interesting. And then we have the fusion stuff, the out there stuff. It always used to be 50 or 60 years away, and now it's kind of 20 years away. Okay. So it's, so it's moving closer. Yeah. Moving and, I, closer. and I guess this is another one to put on the list of what we were talking about before, that there has been this change at this point in time where we're now mm-hmm. asking those questions about, well, okay, if we really push this from an efficiency point of view, where can yes. we take it? And I think, it, you know, to summarize, I think everything we've just talked about mm-hmm. is is that's essentially what's been happening over the last few years, isn't it? And certainly going to be happening in the, in the coming decade is really that thought process yes for for i'm going to say the first time a real drive of efficiency in so many different areas so no carl thank you so much for your time and your expertise and and everything you've delivered on the show if people want to find out more about you and what you do and where you are where would you send them to and you can go to uh, my company's website which is www batteryinnovation.org uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as Carl Telford and uh, yeah those two I think there's more than enough on those two uh, <laughs> on those two areas about me yeah absolutely no, um, thank yeah. you thank you very much for being such a such a great guest I absolutely it's been great talking to you Chris and uh, I really appreciate being on the show great you've been listening to transitional matters make sure to like subscribe and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk and we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.